0: Well, if you have your Bible, turn me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, and uh, if you've been around here very long, you know it's our custom to uh, work our way through the text of Scripture kind of verse by verse or section by section. Uh, It's called expository preaching, and uh, about 90% of the time we'll be working our way through a uh, particular book. Several years ago, I was doing some teaching and, and missions work in Nairobi, Kenya, and I had finished up about 24 hours earlier than I expected and so even though I was done with my responsibilities I wasn't uh, due to fly out until the next day about the same time. So I made a few calls to see if I could uh, move my my flight up a little bit earlier. It was too expensive so I decided just to hang around and the family that had been hosting me they they said they had to do some traveling as well. So they said it's not safe for you to stay here. This was a time when uh, the country of Kenya was under quite a bit of political unrest, and they said, it's not safe for you to stay here, uh, but we have a, a connection with the Mennonite guest house, which is on the outskirts of Nairobi, and uh, we'll we'll call, we'll make arrangements for you there. Well, I didn't realize just how much on the outskirts it was until I was dropped off at this small village uh, surrounded by uh, high fences and men uh, sporting automatic uh, weapons, automatic rifles, sort of circling the place. It was a bit ironic to me uh, that Mennonites, who are uh, pacifists, would be packing so much heat, Uh, but I was glad for the protection. Frankly, I was glad that there were people around because I knew that this was, in fact, a a sort of volatile time, and it would be unsafe for me uh, to venture out. Now, one of the challenges was there was nothing to do. There was no one else staying in the house, And there was no internet, no cell data, no Netflix. There was nothing at all to do. I spent a little time reading, spent some time in prayer, but then after that I was just bored out of my mind. I couldn't think of what to do and I couldn't sleep. So I tried to go to bed early, it wasn't working. All I could do really was lie there and think about all that I had experienced that week. And I had seen some things that I would never forget. I'd held babies whose bodies were ransacked by HIV I'd slapped high fives with, with, with boys who, whose faces were covered with infection, their eyes swollen shut. I'd eaten breakfast next to a 12-year-old boy who had full-blown AIDS, and when the host asked us to, to hold hands before we prayed for our meal after this young man had been c- coughing and hacking into his hands, it was a real stretch for me. It really was. It, as a person who hoves on the side a little bit of sort of being a germaphobe, I was, uh, it was difficult for me knowing that uh, that this kid had AIDS, but I grabbed his hand and we prayed. And as I was thinking about in the middle of the morning, really unable to sleep, these images of suffering, and as the thick silence of the African night just haunted me, I couldn't help but think almost all the devastation that I had seen throughout the week was a consequence of man taking something that God had created good, in this case, sex within marriage, and perverting it, twisting it, and abusing it. Now, it's a longer story than I have time for, for this morning, but because of witch doctors and animists in, in, in some of the global south, some of these countries in, in the southern part of Africa, AIDS has spread uh, rampantly. There's a pandemic because men are told by witch doctors and others that if they go sleep with a virgin, they can get rid of their AIDS, but instead continue to infect in this vicious circle. And I was thinking about this. How something that God created for our good had been so perverted that the damage it caused was seemingly uh, beyond control. Uh, We're in a study in 1 Timothy, what I've called, Isn't She Beautiful? Which is a reference to, of course, the the beauty of the church, the bride of Christ. And we've already seen the ways that, that bad theology or wrong views about God have crept into the church at Ephesus. And they've led to uh, great havoc. And Paul, though, is very quick to address them. So this morning, we're going to continue in the text. And we're going to see from the text answers to three questions. Where does bad theology come from? So where does this, what's the origin? What is its most devastating effect? And what is the antidote to bad theology? So 1 Timothy chapter 4, we'll cover, the ver- first, we'll cover verses 1 through 5 had initially planned to getting, uh, on getting to 6, but we'll have to wait uh, till next week for that. Let me read verses 1 and 2 of First Timothy 4. The text reads this way. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So Paul begins this section of his letter by warning Timothy and us about these false teachers and the damage they would cause. And and again, this is Paul writing to Timothy, who's been left in Ephesus to lead and guide this church. And he says that in later days, these false teachers would come. Well, when we think of later days, we tend to think of times still yet to come, right? The later days are going to arrive soon. Um, But the phrase later days is just a reference to this time in history, uh, redemptive history between Jesus' first coming and his return. So his first coming was, of course, the incarnation, the birth of Christ, and then his return, which we await. In other words, we're actually living in the later days. We're, We're living in the last days. And you read this throughout some of the New Testament Papers we see this phrase the last days and the spirit of God has revealed that in the last days the days that we're living in Bad theology diabolical doctrine Wrong-headed assertions about God and his salvation would actually infect The church and Paul says that bad doctrine would arise and be spread by deceitful spirits and through insincere liars Here's our first point as it relates to the origin of bad theology. The origin of bad theology is the evil one, another name for Satan, the devil, and it is advanced through the false teaching of soul-hardened leaders. The devil, who's always been a liar and deceiver, a strong persuader, uses hypocritical and self-important men and women to propagate his lies. So ever since his demise, the devil has sought to fool and deceive and trick and mislead people. Now, when you think about the devil, what sort of images uh, come to your mind? Uh, if we're only a few weeks really from Halloween, so maybe when you think about the devil, you think of kind of a sneaky person uh, wearing a red cape with rounded horns. A few years ago, I was at a church planting conference in. Durham, North Carolina, and the the conference was for lead pastors who were interested in in helping their church actually plant other churches, become a sending church. And so uh, J.D. Greer, who's a Uh, way up in the Southern Baptist Convention, was was leading this conference. And it was only for about 18 or 20 people. So we're there. And then on Sunday, we had some free time. So another guy and I decided to go over and visit Duke University. You know, if you've ever been around, it's just incredible, incredible campus. Just a beautiful uh, place to be. And so we got there, and uh, we were able to make our way into Cameron Indoor Stadium, which is where the men's basketball team plays and uh, a woman's volleyball game had just ended, so they're sort of dispersing, and uh, people are leaving, and the crowds are walking in. We, we walked in, and we actually found a basketball. We were able to shoot around for a few minutes uh, on the floor. Now, this is good news, because now I can tell people that I played basketball at Duke University, um, <laughs> but because the mascot is the blue devil, there were these images of little devils all over the place, but I have to be honest with you, they weren't really that scary. They almost looked kind of cute. You know, they they didn't really scare anybody. Um, They're on mugs and blankets and so on. But is this really what the devil is like? Is the devil really sort of a miniature person who walks around with a a long cape? And we know that's not the case. The Bible presents the devil as a real supernatural and personal being of tremendous evil and power Uh, but one whose power and influence extend only so far as the sovereign God allows. Martin Luther once said that even the devil is God's devil, meaning only the devil, the devil can only do what the sovereign God allows him to do. The Bible presents the devil as one who's already been defeated by Jesus, and so he's working on borrowed time, right? This is why he has a sense of urgency. He wants to destroy and mislead and deceive as many as possible. The, the apostle Peter calls him the great our great adversary or enemy of the believer. Peter says in 1st Peter chapter 5, be sober-minded, be watchful, your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But how does the devil seek to devour God's people? It's not the way you might imagine. It's not necessarily by leading people to do terrible, heinous things. I think if the devil had his way, people would be doing the worst things imaginable. That's not what we see throughout Scripture. It's not really the way we see the devil work. But instead, by duping people into believing wrong ideas about God and God's salvation. So, I think it seems to me from my reading of Scripture that the devil has three weapons that he likes to use to get at us. The first one is unbelief loves to foster unbelief in fact if you go all the way back to the garden of Eden you see the devil as a serpent slithering up to Eve and saying did God really say that did God really say that did he say you couldn't really eat of any of the tree and of course God didn't really say that but said there was one you couldn't eat from he's twisting God's words as a way to question the goodness of God and his provisions says does God really want What's best for you? What is he hiding? Does God really have your good at heart? If the devil can cause us to question God's goodness and, and the sufficiency of his provision, particularly in Christ, he gets his foot in the door and he can wreak further havoc. Of course, we see this in the garden, but we see, we see it throughout redemptive history. Another approach the devil uses to, bring, uh, used to get us is to bring about despair. He tries to persuade us that God could never love us because of what we've done. That we, by our actions and our thoughts, we've actually become unlovable. We keep failing over and over, even going back to the same sins, the same offenses. There's no way that God could love us. We just have proved to be unreliable. I met with a woman one time who was known in our church to be one of the most godly women in our community. And and I believe she was. But I sat down with her and... Through tears, she said, I, "I just don't believe God could really love me." So why why do you why do you say that? She goes, "Well, I, you don't understand. I put on this great front, but but I'm always struggling internally. I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling with temptation. I'm struggling with anxiety, with worry, and all these things. And I don't think I think I've exhausted God's patience. I don't think He could really love me. The devil would love to bring us to a place of despair and prompt us to believe that God's love for us is contingent upon." our behavior, our performance. So he reminds us all of the ways that we fail God so that we'll conclude, again, that we can't possibly be worth being loved. What does a person do who has abandoned all hope of being loved and accepted? They move on, don't they? We see it in the face of a young woman who's been rejected by the young man she so desperately desires. She tries and she dresses up a certain way and she uses certain language and she acts a certain way, but he's just not interested. And we see that despair ultimately culminate in her giving up. We see it in the frustration of a man who's tried to get this job. He wants this job. He's put his resume in. He keeps going back. He even drops in unannounced, but he's not wanted. So, He goes somewhere else. Despair, the devil's choice weapon. It's like the song we sang last week when Satan tempts me to despair. How? By telling me of the guilt within. You're not good enough. He wants us to believe. There's no way you could ever be loved. You're too unreliable. You keep doing the same things over and over. You're hopeless. The devil wants us to feel hopeless and unlovable so that we walk away from God. If he can't destroy us by despair, he'll try the opposite approach. This is how clever he is, and that's pride or self-reliance. This may be, in my estimation, the devil's most cherished tool. He wants to persuade people that salvation is in their own hands, that they just do enough good. They just keep enough rules, do the right things and avoid the bad things. They can finally make God happy with him and of course the devil prompts us to always compare downward so we look around we look at other people who are doing things we would never do at least we believe we would never do we say I must be a pretty good person until the point that we don't even really believe we need a savior a rescuer we believe we can kind of handle things on our own because the devil cannot control our minds he uses means he uses false teachers Bringing ideas and notions and images into our paths through various media, messages, people. While Satan is not a mind controller, he is extremely clever and devious, often operating in ways that we would never expect. Uh, Martin Luther says this about Satan. What he is unable to crush by force, he seeks to suppress by cunning and lies. That was his, his strategy at the beginning. He raised up false prophets and erring spirits and filled the world with heretics. It's not that all false doctrine necessarily comes directly from Satan. Much of our misguided notions flows from our own uh, imagination, right? Our own corrupted flesh. But all of it is demon inspired, you might say. Now look at verses 3 and 4. So he talks about these, these insincere liars whose consciences are seared. And then he says, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, Paul says. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Now to me, this is pretty stunning stuff. He's talking about these, these false teachers who are promoting a demonic theology, right? We're thinking this has got to be really, really bad. So I read that. I think on the next few verses, he's really going to let these people have it for this incredible error they're teaching. I'm thinking maybe they're denying the deity of Christ. Maybe they're saying Jesus was not God. Maybe they're, they're refusing to accept the reality of the resurrection. They're saying, no, there was no resurrection. Maybe they're even denying the existence of God altogether. But that's not what he says. That's not what Paul says. This is not the content of their teaching. They're simply telling folks they shouldn't get married or eat certain foods. Doesn't seem like a really big deal, does it, on the surface? But what they were doing was they were saying that celibacy and abstaining from certain foods were necessary if a person were to be right with God. So they were twisting and perverting the gospel of grace, which is always a big deal. Simply put, they were adding something to God's salvation. And in this case, self-denial. The technical term for what they were teaching is asceticism. Uh, This is uh, the doctrine that a person can attain sort of a higher spiritual status or standing or acceptance from God by practicing self-denial. That is, by, by saying no to things or yes to other things. Paul would say in a different letter what they were doing. They were saying, do not touch, do not taste, do not even handle Kent Hughes says, explains it this way, some of the elders in the Ephesian church who having begun so well in the gospel were now hawking a Christian asceticism as to the path of spirituality. They're saying if you really want God to love you, if you really want to be right with God, you got to say no to these things and yes to these things. And of course they were the ones who determined what you're to say no to and yes to. They're saying, if you really want God to be pleased with you, you want a right standing with God, you've got to make sure you adhere to these very specific requirements. They were presenting as the pathway to God's presence, self-denial and the rejection of things that he had created good. Now, there's nothing wrong with remaining single. This is a good thing. This in God's design is what he has for certain people, and he gives those people the gift. There's nothing wrong with saying no to certain food or certain drink or even becoming a vegetarian in this case. But it's a, it, it is a serious problem. In fact, it's a devastating problem when these practices or any other preference or peripheral matters are made to be steps toward a greater spirituality or requirements for God's forgiveness. Here's the second point this morning. Whenever we add requirements to the gospel... Jesus plus something. We lose the gospel entirely and really make ourselves our own saviors. Whenever we say, you know, it's got to be Jesus plus, Jesus plus baptism, Jesus plus tithing, Jesus plus going on a missions trip, Jesus plus serving in a particular ministry, Jesus plus not eating something, Jesus plus not drinking something. Jesus plus a certain political alignment. Whatever it is, if we say Jesus plus anything, it ruins everything. You can't add things to the gospel or you lose the gospel. Whenever Jesus plus something becomes the formula that we embrace, salvation becomes something that we get credit for. Because at least we have the wherewithal to say no to something or yes to something. But here's the reality. The only thing we'll ever get credit for when it comes to our salvation is the sin that makes salvation necessary. That's the only thing we're going to get credit for. It was our sin that caused him to die on the cross. That we should embrace. That we should accept. Because that's what leads us to brokenness and faith. When we start adding to the equation, we then become our own saviors, at least functionally, because Ultimately, our salvation becomes, becomes what we do and don't do rather than what's already been done by Jesus Christ. In fact, this would happen at a variety of churches in the first century. And it happened here at Ephesus, Paul says in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Some had they had taken the reins back, so to speak, and they believed that they could do enough. To earn their own salvation, so they really didn't need God anymore. They just departed from Him. The Greek word apostasy is the word from which we get apostatize, which means to abandon the faith. These false teachers and those under their tutelage had apostatized. They turned completely with, uh, away from God, despite having professed Him earlier. Now, we might wonder how does this actually happen? You know, I mean, how do we go from professing Christ as Lord, being involved maybe in the church, to then walking totally away from God. How does a person who once claimed to be God's child turn their back on him? Well, it's not typically by sort of denouncing God in an angry way. It's not typically by by shaking our fist at God. It typically happens over time as a person starts to trust more and more in their own abilities and their own behavior. It happens over time as a person begins to trust more and more in their own goodness and they no longer see their need for a Savior. See, the teachers at Ephesus probably didn't say one day, you know, we're no longer followers of the way. We're denying Jesus and we call you to deny Jesus too. No, they very subtly started adding things to the gospel of grace. Saying, yeah, but if you want to be right with God, you got you to gotta do this and you can't, you can't do that. God will never receive you if you do that. Uh, my wife, Janine, is a terrific painter, um, painting, painting rooms, and she can, she can edge in a, a ceiling or a wall better than anyone I've ever seen. Uh, when, when I paint, by contrast, I'm a terrible mess. I, I, I get it all over me, all over the floor, all over the ceiling, all over my clothes, my head. Uh, my bald head becomes the canvas for a painting that no one ever wanted. And I, I just, it just drips all over me. I, I can't help it. Um, well, sometimes when you paint a room, even a subtle change in color can make a big difference. But only if you have an example of what the original color was, right? And what I mean by that, we, we painted rooms before and we've spent, and Janine only lets me do the rolling at this point, but, but we've, we've painted rooms before and at the end of which we said, that, that doesn't look any different than it did. I, had, uh, I asked Janine to paint my office at a, at a previous location. She painted the whole thing. And I said, It looks exactly the same. Will you please paint it again? Uh, <laughs> but sometimes you, you look at it and it, it doesn't look any different until you're able to go. If you have another room that was in the original color, you can go in that room and you say, Oh, I see. I see the contrast. I see, I see the difference now because I'm looking at the original. Subtle changes are the hardest to detect. And it's the same way with theology. It's the same way with theological error. It's not the major false teaching that we're typically prone to accepting. It's the small, almost imperceptible changes. Changes that ultimately leave us in control. Changes that give us the reins again. Make salvation contingent upon us. It's what happened at Galatia. And Paul says, who has bewitched you? How did you start off so well and now look where you are? It happened at Colossae, the first century, where the believers started. They they said, well, we have to participate in these festivals and new moons and eating and drinking. It happened at Ephesus, which Paul is addressing now via his protege, Timothy. The gospel of grace had been perverted so that adherence to a certain set of practices, obedience to certain demands, or even the denial of certain pleasures was presented as the key to appeasing God. But Paul says, everything created by God is good. Made for our enjoyment when consumed appropriately. Now, of course, we can pervert and twist God's good creation when we enjoy what He's designed in a way or a context that is contrary to His will. We can take something good and we can pervert it. Uh, For example, sex outside of marriage. Food eaten immoderately, drink consumed to excess, music with ungodly lyrics, wealth that is enjoyed at the expense of others, art that promotes a sacrilegious message. Those are ways that good things, food and drink and art and wealth and all of those things, sex are enjoyed in a way that is contrary to God's design. And therefore, they dishonor him. Even the very good things that God has made for our enjoyment can be used, again, harmfully or to excess. So we guard against the abuse of God's created things. Prayerfully and humbly and in the context of community, we watch out for ourselves and one another, helping each other avoid the immoderate, the excessive, the ungodly enjoyment of the things that God has created good. A person who has struggled with alcoholism probably shouldn't consume any alcohol at all. The dangers are too great. A person who has struggled with overeating, gluttony, probably shouldn't go to restaurants with a buffet. It sounds like a joke, but it's true. The, the, the temptation is too strong. A person whose conscience may be violated by eating or drinking or dancing or whatever it is shouldn't violate his or her conscience. But it doesn't mean that we label as inherently wrong the things that God has created good. We're not doing God any favors when we call bad what God has called good. Nor do we impose our own convictions on others. This always leads to self-righteousness. Now look at verses 4 and 5 again. Paul says, For everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. What does it mean to receive something with thanksgiving? Well, certainly it means with gratitude in our hearts to God, but it also means to enjoy something in a way that honors God. Let me make it very practical. One way to determine if you're enjoying something, uh, even a good thing, in a way that God has not designed is to ask yourself the question, Can I thank God for what I'm doing right now without being ashamed? So I'm doing this thing, whatever it is, can I thank God for it without feeling guilty? So a thoughtful person who is eating his ninth taco will probably find it hard to say, thank you God for yet another taco, right? It's it's not really done in moderation. A Christian who's listening to music with lyrics that demean women or promote violence will find it very difficult to say to God, thank you for this music. A follower of Jesus who is involved in an illicit sexual relationship may find pleasure in it, but will find it impossible to thank God for it because it's something good that has been enjoyed outside of God's design. There are ways that we pervert God's good design But Paul says it, that is the good thing, the good things God has created, it is made holy by the word and prayer. That is to say, we're able to recognize God's good things as good through careful study of his word and through prayer. In doing so, we'll be able to see God as the referent of all good things and we'll see how to enjoy with thanksgiving the things, the way he designed them to be enjoyed. Here's our final point this morning, a cure for this wrong-headed theology. The antidote to bad theology is a humble recognition that every good thing we have comes from God, even our righteousness. Paul says that the things God created are to be received by those who believe and know the truth earlier in the section. Well, remember, we've seen this already in First Timothy that the truth in, in this in Pauline language is a synonym for the gospel. In other words, those who believe and know the truth are those who believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world and only by trusting in Him by faith can they be forgiven. By believing in His his obedience, His death, His resurrection, can they be forgiven. Only by by understanding it's not through self-denial. It's not through good works. It's not through our abilities or achievements. It's not through eating or drinking or not eating or drinking certain foods. Every good thing, including our righteousness comes from God. Now think about how this actually addresses, we talked about Satan's greatest weapons just a few moments ago. Think about how this addresses those. Think about unbelief. The more we're able to grasp God's goodness, the more that we're able to see his beauty in everything good, the more that we're able to see just how generous and gracious this incredible king is, the more our hearts are stirred to gratitude And our belief is strengthened. So this is the antidote to unbelief. Is recognizing, resting in the goodness of God. And all that he's provided. Namely, Jesus Christ. Our substitute, our savior. How about despair? The more we're able to recognize that any shred of goodness that we have. Any shred of spiritual goodness we have. Any aspect of our right standing with God is based on Jesus' righteousness and not our own, it actually destroys despair. So when the devil says, you know what, you're a sinner. You are a wicked and unreliable and fickle person. What do we say? Yeah, you're right. You've got me nailed. You've got me pegged. But Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for the wicked. He died for the fickle. He died for the unreliable. So I'm exactly where I need to be. A sinner who is resting in, trusting in God's grace. Trusting in the work of Jesus. So Satan says, you're not worth being loved. You're not worth being uh, adored. We say, that's true. But God loved me anyway. He sent his only son so that I could be made right with him when I didn't deserve to be loved. See, the issue is not that we deserve to be loved and God looks down and says, oh, now there's a really good person, I'm going to say. The reality is every single person is apart from God, at enmity with God, God's very enemies. But God says, because of my great love, I'm going to bring that person to myself. I'm going to work in such a way to bring that person to repentance and faith, and I'm going to make him, I'm going to make her my very own. Well, what about this last weapon the devil uses, pride? Well, when we get that everything we have is a gift, everything we have is because of God's good and tender mercy, even our own salvation, how could we possibly look down our noses at other people who don't get it? My mom used to tell me all the time, I don't know if she thought I was puffed up with pride, but I was, when I was a teenager, she would tell me all the time, if I'd have a A good sporting event, a good game, or do something well, she'd say, remember, even that ability is a gift. Whatever you have, it's a gift. So how can you be puffed up about it? I never thought I was puffed up about it. Apparently I was. She'd say it all the time. That's a gift. Whatever it is, that's a gift. If we understand that salvation is a gift from God, how can we look down our noses at those who don't get it, those who have not been saved? It was only because of divine rescue that we belong to Him. I met with dozens, I don't know, maybe hundreds of people for baptism interviews, membership interviews, whatever it is. And when I ask them what they're trusting in for salvation, and sometimes I phrase it differently, what you're standing before, I use the old sort of D. James Kennedy, if you're standing before God and he asks you, why should I grant you entrance into heaven, what will you say? A lot of times I get unchristian answers, things like I've tried my best to live for him or I've been in church my whole life or I've always been a Christian or I've been a good person. And those aren't, that's not a Christian testimony. But sometimes, but often I get answers that are actually good. They're just incomplete. I hear this a lot. Jesus died for my sins and I'm putting my faith in him for forgiveness. That's absolutely true. Praise God for that. That's a Christian testimony. But it's not the entire thing. I can't remember a time where I've heard someone say, and his obedience, the obedience of Jesus was credited to me by faith. His righteousness was imputed to me so that I stand before God now righteous, holy and just and pure because of the work of Jesus that he accomplished on my behalf. The, the good news of the gospel is that God gives us, not only forgives us, he gives us the righteousness of Christ. So if you're in Christ this morning, you, you have everything you need. You have All the blessings that Christ deserved because of his obedience are now yours. You are loved by God. You are approved by God. You are accepted by God. And there's nothing you can do to become unloved by God. Because he looks at you through the lens of Christ. You have the promise of God's abiding presence today. You can rest with all certainty knowing that God is working things out for your good and his glory. These are all yours in Christ. Every heavenly blessing... Is yours because of Jesus. I heard one man illustrate it this way, I thought it was so good. He said, Grace is certainly the forgiveness of a debt. Imagine if you owed the bank hundreds of millions of dollars, far more than you could ever earn in a lifetime. You simply don't have the resources. And the bank says, We are expunging all your debt. It's not just waved away, the shareholders will pay for your failures, your shortcomings. And your egregious decisions. That's good news. But what happens after the person leaves the bank? What does he have? He doesn't have anything, does he? His debt may have been expunged, but his bank account is still empty. That's why the gospel is even deeper and richer than that. In the case of grace, the bank's not done. The truth of the gospel is not only does the bank waive all your indebtedness, which comes at a staggering cost to someone, but the manager says, Not only have I covered all your debts, but I've added your name to the bank ledger so that all that this bank owns belongs to you. You now have everything you could ever need. You don't have to work anymore to repay your debt. It's all taken care of. You will never be without anything you need. That's the beauty of the gospel. We don't have to work for our salvation. The effort we put in is in response to what God has already done. We don't have to deny ourselves any of God's good things. That's not how we endear ourselves to him. In fact, any teaching that says that adding something to Jesus' work is what satisfies God is false teaching. And Paul says it comes from the devil. It comes from the devil. Anything that says if you do this or don't do this, that's how you're right with God. It's demonic, Paul says. (laughs) That's, That's pretty scary to me. This is how much Paul treasures the beauty of the gospel, the purity of the gospel. And it's the recognition that we're already approved by God in Christ that allows us to live with joy. It grants to us the freedom of knowing. We don't constantly have to do enough. That's the true triumph over demons, by the way, and their demonic teaching. It's not by adding to our list of things other things to do and not do. It's by believing that anything good we have or could ever have, even the righteousness by which we will be welcomed before God, it's all from Christ and Christ alone. That's how we triumph over demons. Not by adding, but by believing. Not by doing, but by resting in what's already been done. I'll close with this beautiful quote by Charles Spurgeon, who said this in a sermon in 1873. He said, our tendency is to try to do something in order to save ourselves. But we must beat that tendency down and look away from self to Christ. And then he says, labor to get away from your own labors. Labor in your prayers, never to depend upon your prayers. Labor in your repentance, never to rest upon your repentance. And labor in your faith, not to trust your faith, but to trust along to Jesus Labor to continue where the publican was and cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Labor not to grow upward in self-esteem, but to grow downward in humility, growing continually less and less and less in all your own estimation and ever crowning Christ as Lord. We're only gonna get there by supernatural work of the Spirit. But let's pray that God would bring us there even today.